if you can create this at a larger level, in other words, really push these as values, then you can open up debates about what kind of a world we want to create. And I emphasize the word create there because once you're emphasizing this as a value, you realize much of the world around us is constructed. We've largely constructed it out of patterns we've fallen into and increasingly because we have states manipulating those patterns, but we could construct it differently. And all of what I've mentioned is what allows that debate to occur. So once we begin to reach a level where we take these ideas seriously, we can begin to ask, how do we address these larger patterns? Why do we keep falling into these patterns of social hierarchy? Why have we allowed levels of economic inequality to emerge at, again, world historical levels? Why are we destroying the climate and, despite our claims, really doing nothing about it? And concretely, how would we reorganize the world? Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie van der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Michael Pewitt, Walter C. Klein, Professor of Chinese History and Anthropology at Harvard University and non-resident long-term fellow here at SCAS. Michael Pewitt was in residence at SCAS in the spring of 2020 and has been a regular visitor for many years. Today he is joining us from Harvard to talk about his research on long-term trends in Chinese history and how they influence current events. And this is the first episode in our theme Asia, Citizens and State Relations. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Michael. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. So thank you so much for inviting me to this. And indeed, as you've mentioned, my work has involved looking at long-term trends in Chinese history and trying to rethink world history and current events accordingly. And as you've also mentioned, I've been a long-term fellow at SCAS, which has been just an extraordinary experience. It has been an incredible community that I've loved being a part of. Great. So very broadly, we will get into details. What is your research about? So my main concern is really to try to rethink our narratives of world history if we take Chinese history seriously. So most of those narratives are based upon an assumption that all humans lived in something we like to call a traditional world, where they were just born into a social hierarchy, a way of thinking, pre-given social order that they had no ability to change. And then we like to think that luckily for us, we entered the modern world, um, which of course exclusively occurred in and continues to occur in the West. And that for the first time brought humanity into, well, the possibility of deciding for themselves how to live, how to build a government, how to organize the world. And if you look at Chinese history, you quickly realize that narrative is not only wrong empirically, but it's really dangerous. It really leads us to simply assume that the current world, which has been dominated for two centuries by Western powers, is the proper end fulfillment of all of human history, meaning that we don't take any other culture seriously, certainly including China. But why haven't we done that previously? 
I think a lot of it really does have to do with European and American history. So this entire narrative of modernity arose in the 19th century, which was, of course, the period of European imperialism. And in that period, one of the ways you justify the imperial endeavor is you say, well, we Europeans have broken from the 18th century world where all power and wealth was defined by heredity. We are breaking from that, they claimed. And we are also claiming that the rest of the world is mired in the world that 18th century Europe lived in, and we are liberating that world for them. And so the imperial endeavor helps to open up and liberate everyone else too. And amazingly, those ideas persist for two centuries. How did you get interested in this research topic to start with? Actually, it kind of began for a negative reason, by which I mean in high school when I was growing up in America, nothing outside of Western history was ever mentioned in the classroom. And at a certain point, that began to concern me. So I started going to the library and reading about the rest of the world, very quickly realizing that what I was assuming about that world, just from the general visions of modernity that surrounded me were dangerously wrong. And as that reading continued, I finally decided I really wanted to devote myself to learning East Asian languages, learning East Asian cultures, learning East Asian history, and rethinking a lot of my assumptions. I think a lot of people have that experience that you don't know so much about Chinese and Asian culture and history. And, and that part of the world is not very well taught at schools in the Western world. Not at all. I mean, certainly looking back, it was not even mentioned in the classroom, but what I would pick up, the stereotypes just from television and journalism, etc., the stereotype was that, yes, Asia had been this traditional world as we then defined it, and still sadly do define it, up until the Western impact. That Western impact was creating all of these crises, but the good side of it was hopefully it was bringing Asia into the modern world. And That was a narrative I kind of just took for granted for lack of any other competing way of thinking. And it was really only by actually beginning to read outside of the classroom that I began to see how just dangerously myopic that view of history is. Very good that you engaged in that then and built a career on this type of uh, questions then. So you're interested in the long-term trends in Chinese history and how they influence current events, if I understood this correctly. So what sort of long-term trends have you been able to identify and looked at? Well, one I would like to mention in particular is something we just touched on in these modernity narratives, where we like to think that in the West exclusively, we began in the 19th century trying to open up the world such that it's not simply dominated by an hereditary elite, where there would be true meritocracy, where people on their own initiative could live their own lives, that people could rethink how the world should be constructed. Well, if you look in Chinese history, that certainly happened. The first major place where it begins happening is fourth and third centuries before the Common Era, about two millennia ago, where absolutely they were living at the end of two millennia of what we now call the Bronze Age, which were periods where Absolutely. All wealth and power was controlled by an hereditary elite. These were aristocratic societies. The aristocrats controlled 
literally all power, and those states began crumbling in the first millennium BCE. And in China, you get a huge debate as they crumble about what kind of states we should build in contrast to that, how we could start building true meritocracies, what it would mean to rethink the world, how you would create communities where humans could really begin to flourish on their own initiative as opposed to a social status they happen to be born into. And not only do you get that debate going on in the world of ideas, which is in itself exciting, you then start getting attempts to institutionalize this such that you now get, you're looking at the long-term trend, two millennia of attempts to build meritocratic societies, none of which, of course, were perfect, but many of which are ones that we could learn dramatically from in terms of policies, ways of thinking about meritocracy, ways of avoiding the danger that a meritocracy simply ends up recapitulating an existing elite, something that in America we are now finally beginning to wrestle with in depth. And these are topics that were an active concern in terms of government policy and philosophical debate for, again, two millennia, a world from which we should be learning dramatically as opposed to, <laughs> to forgetting about it because we claim it's some it's mired in some traditional past. So what is different from the Western world? What are the biggest differences that you found? Well, one that's fascinating, particularly in the current moment, is, and this was a topic of hot debate, but certainly one position that became very powerful in China, argued strongly that the only way you're going to break down a tendency of humans to allow themselves to be controlled by social hierarchies, defined exclusively by heredity, one of the arguments that wins the day is that you need a powerful state. Absolutely. Not that the state in itself will solve the problem, but you're not going to solve the problem without that. And so once you get that view that becomes, again, in some ways dominant, then the idea is how do you then build a state that would be a real meritocracy? In other words, that would not simply be controlled by an hereditary elite. How do you build a state that would actually be as much as possible divorced from moneyed interests, whether that money came from birth, in other words, an aristocracy, or whether it came through mercantile activity. And China had a huge, robust economy. But there too, the concern was we don't want people who become wealthy through the marketplace to then be able to control the state apparatus, because the state apparatus should be actually able to work against moneyed interests on behalf of the larger population. And again, once this becomes an explicit topic of concern, you have centuries of work to maintain that divorce between the state and moneyed interests to build a true meritocracy. And again, none of these efforts were perfect, but they are certainly ones from which we should learn dramatically. I mean, I'm speaking, of course, from America, where we like to say we have a meritocracy. I think from any possible outside perspective, certainly looking at it from the view of, of Chinese theory, it looks very much like a world where we have a largely dysfunctional government that is controlled very much by moneyed interests, particularly corporate interests. And were we able to develop some kind of a divorce between state institutions and moneyed interests, it would mean the state could deal with things like social inequality, climate change, things that just seem untouchable in America because they, by definition, would work against corporate interests. So, clear topic from which we could be learning so much 
from the Chinese experience. So that sort of answers my next question. How can we rethink? This is one I would love for people to simply know so much about that they could do that rethinking. And what I mean by that is the history I just mentioned is largely unknown. I would love it if in the debates in America, if people simply knew this history and people sitting around the tables in in Washington, D.C. would be saying, well, this way of building a divorce could work this way. This other way of building a meritocracy could work this way. And if we were actually wrestling with the concrete ideas, it could change absolutely everything. Looking at it from the point of Chinese history, the opening move should be to say, how do we create a divorce between government institutions and corporate interests? And here there are immediate and very practical things we could do. So how do you take out, and I'll stick with America as an example, but it's sadly become a global problem too, How do you take out what in America is called lobbying, which in any other context, looking at China, there is a word for what lobbying is. It's corruption. (laughs) It involves huge, powerful corporations literally handing tons of money to politicians to write regulations that support them. We've simply in America given a different name to that, lobbying, but in China, that would simply be called corruption. And you attack it like you attack any corruption. You try to think through concretely, how do we prevent that kind of a money transfer? And in China, you have lots of policies trying to actively prevent that to maintain that divorce. In contrast, in America, not only are we trying not to actively stop this, this is seen as actually a very crucial part of the workings of the American economy. Because the idea, and you'll hear people say this quite openly, is that, oh, but we want what are called the leaders in different economic areas to have a major voice in the writing of regulations because they have been successful, so they know what's best for the industry. Now, of course, the counter-argument to that is very obvious. Well, they know what's best for them in a given industry. They, by definition, are not thinking about what is best for the general welfare. And so a concrete place, if you could begin by creating that divorce, then you open up the space for an honest political debate about the kind of world we want to be constructing and what values we want to hold as a community. So China does it better. Well, China at times has done it better. Now, I want to emphasize immediately the current regime in China, I would not say is doing all of what I just mentioned. Now, one thing I will say positively before I get to a few negative things I think they are certainly trying to maintain that divorce between state power and corporate interest. That's been a hallmark of recent moves made by the People's Republic of China. So there's a strong anti-corruption campaign, a strong attempt to rebuild that divorce, a growing concern with social inequality, which in China has reached extraordinary levels too. And now there's a very self-conscious attempt to deal with this. China has become a major polluter and a major contributor to climate change. And now there's a very self-conscious policy in China to try to address this. And this is being stated very publicly in opposition to America, saying America has a government that can't deal with these issues. We do. And we're going to to try to prove to the world that we do. So the current regime in China is certainly building on pieces of the Chinese tradition. There are lots of pieces of the Chinese tradition. And The current regime in China is also building on a very strong authoritarian side that 
personally, I would push very, very strongly against. But even here, oftentimes, especially in America, there's a sort of focus on, well, in America, we are free. In China, it's this horrible totalitarian regime. That's a very dangerous approach because actually in China, it's a very complex tradition, a very complex culture. The current power that be is very authoritarian, but it is building on powerful pieces of the tradition. And there are also different voices in the tradition that would allow you to build on those powerful parts and push against the current authoritarian focus as well. So I wouldn't say the current regime is fully living up to all of this. It most certainly is not. But absolutely, we need to rethink how we are approaching China to encourage the powerful parts and not simply de facto encourage the most authoritarian sides of this. Yeah, very interesting. I was thinking just going back a few steps here for myself and also for our listeners. How would you explain meritocracy? What is it? Yes. So basically, meritocracy is an attempt to build a social formation in which people are able to rise in positions of power and wealth in the economic sphere simply through their merit rather than through birth. And the reason for the concern is that throughout human history, and certainly we know this very well in the West, and it's absolutely been true throughout the entire globe, humans have had a very strong tendency to fall into social patterns in which all power, all wealth is controlled by an hereditary elite, um, we tend to call the aristocracy. That aristocracy, by means of controlling all power and all wealth, they have exclusive control over the legal apparatus, which really isn't the legal apparatus in the way we would even think of it. It's simply law is applied by the aristocracy to control those below them. And there's virtually no social mobility of any kind. So in Western history, this was the case for many, many, many centuries. And certainly throughout the globe, it has been the case at various points in their histories as well. And meritocracy is an attempt to say, how do we build an order that would break down that control by the aristocracy? In the case of China, the focus is really, how do we build a state that would not be controlled by an aristocracy? Also, again, that would not be controlled by money, power, wherever that money comes from. So even if you gain money through the marketplace, if you're born poor and become very wealthy, that in itself should not give you control over the state apparatus. And rather, the state should be operating on principles of merit. So those working in the state should be in the state because they have achieved merit. In China, that's largely defined by education. So in the political sphere, the key was you become educated. If you can become educated, you have to pass an incredibly difficult exam. And if you can pass it, you can then enter the bureaucracy at the lowest level. <laughs> and then if you do well, you can slowly work your way up the bureaucracy. And when it's working well, the idea is you're bringing people in who are not aristocrats, or if you're bringing people in who are aristocrats, it's because they're getting that power through their education, not because of their wealth. And the exams, for example, would be done intentionally blind, so there would be no danger that the judges could know that, say, a very powerful, wealthy aristocrat was taking, had written this exam versus that exam. And getting back to the heart of the question, then, if this works, the ideal is you would create a world where 
you would be able to achieve, to stick with this example, political success simply through merit. And if you create that world, then hopefully it would be inspiring for those next generations to say the same. Education is a path toward political power and simply being born into the aristocracy in itself will not give you any political power. I'm just thinking about the conversation I had yesterday. I was talking to some PhD students and postdocs from Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, and they were from other countries, and they were saying they were surprised how many of their fellow PhD students came from academic families. It really is amazing. Certainly, again, looking at America, which is, I think, one of the most extreme examples of this, in America, we love to think that we are a meritocratic society. There's incredible levels of social mobility. As long as you work hard, you can do anything you want. If you look at the social data, though, it's very clear. There is a very clear social hierarchy that just replicates itself. That's true in terms of social class. It's also, getting back to your point as well, equally true in terms of profession, that basically If you were born into a family with a certain level of, of social status, you tend to remain there for generations. In a profession, you tend to remain there for, for generations. And it is amazing how little social mobility there really is in America, despite the claim that we live in this radically socially mobile world. recent projects is about China as a surveillance state and I think most people have heard a bit about that or have thoughts about that but can you tell us a little bit more about your project there what are you addressing absolutely so we've been mentioning the what I find the powerful aspects of Chinese political theory and Chinese political practice of trying to develop a meritocracy Now, there is another side of Chinese political theory that has recently become extremely important. And going very briefly, that side of Chinese political theory has argued if humans have a tendency to fall into patterns and ruts, the sort of patterns and ruts that can play out, as we've noted, in an entire social organization, so you're born into a social hierarchy and you tend to replicate that social hierarchy, and We've mentioned many of the more powerful aspects, at least as I would see them, of the tradition is about trying to break that down. So how do we break down these larger social patterns? Now, there has been another side of Chinese political theory that would say, oh, yes, we certainly want to break down patterns like an aristocracy, a pre-given social hierarchy. We certainly want to create a powerful state. But what if we created a powerful state that could be so effective at following people's patterns and, yes, manipulating people's patterns, that we could gain incredible levels of control. It would not be an aristocratic state. The state would be controlling things, but the state would be controlling things at an incredibly powerful level. Now, these ideas you can trace back 2,000 years, but now, of course, we have new technologies that allow all that I just mentioned to be played out at a far grander level than could have even been imagined 2,000 years ago. And the way this is being played out, of course, is imagine a state that could use algorithms to trace what everyone does, to begin with an obvious example, on, say, their phone. 
So imagine a society where, and this is easy to imagine because we live in one, <laughs> imagine a society where basically all of your chats are going with friends, are going through a phone, all of your networks can be traced through your phone, all of your purchases are being traced through the phone. Sometimes you'll use a computer, but it's equally being going, it's equally going through the internet. Um, physically, where you move about the city, where you go, what time of the day is traced through your phone. The basic patterns, therefore, of what you buy, who you talk to, what your networks are, your daily habits can be traced. And if you can, with algorithms, work all of these out, you can not only, therefore, know people's patterns, you can then begin to manipulate them. Now, the way I'm describing it sounds a little scary. Um, to make it even more scary, before we fully work out how this is playing out in China, let me note, everything I just mentioned is not China-specific. In fact, actually, this was developed in America. So all that I just mentioned is going on. Um, Facebook and Google in America trace absolutely everything we do. That information, those patterns, those habits, those ruts are then sold to political campaigns, advertisers, and they, of course, use that material to manipulate us, to manipulate us to buy their products, to manipulate us to go certain directions politically. By literally, they will know that at 4.20 p.m., we have a tendency to look at certain places on our screen. We've been working all day. We're a little more tired. We're more tempted to buy something that pops up on that one place in our screen. We tend to buy certain sorts of things. That's known. Um, political campaigns know that certain sorts of news stories keep bringing our attention. We keep clicking on them. We therefore get more and more and more of them. They know what time of the day as well. We tend to get really riled up. What news stories and what flashes of key statements in the headlines really get us excited? And as an election comes up, those start mysteriously appearing um, more and more at those key moments. So those algorithms developed by places like Google and Facebook to manipulate us are global. Now, returning to China, imagine all that we just mentioned, which is already going on, but then imagine that the state has direct control over those algorithms. So we, and I think quite correctly, find this very scary as the development of a true surveillance state, a state that would really be able to follow all of our patterns and manipulate us accordingly. But here, too, we need to be very careful not to put this into a we in the West are free and in China you have this totalitarian government sort of framework. Um, no, China is, yes, building on some of its indigenous political theory about how to build an effective state. It's literally using the algorithms developed, in this case in America, in order to do this. And it's not quite as radically different than the world we are living in, in America as well. In Germany, for example, they have this app now during the pandemic to trace your contacts. You can get a warning if you have been close to somebody who, who has tested positive later on. And I think that has been discussed quite a lot in terms of surveillance and so on. 
It has, and it's a wonderful example because when we discuss it in terms of a government or corporations like Google and Facebook tracing everything we do, it, and correctly so, sounds very scary, but it raises the question of, well, why do we not only put up with it, but with Google and Facebook, we use these literally all the time. And I think part of the answer is what you're touching on, because they are invaluable in all sorts of ways. Certainly with simple things like shopping, it's really, really handy to actually type in pants and the algorithms know exactly what sorts of pants you, you like. And that's very handy. I'm getting to the more substantial issues that you raised. Yes. I mean, why was the place like China so able once the pandemic began, why were they so able to bring it under control? And the answer is not only can they do honest quarantines, they can do absolute contact tracing. They know during a quarantine who needs what food, who needs what medicine. All of that is worked out in their databases. Had we in America anything like this, it would have been invaluable. And to the remote slight degree that we have, as you mentioned in contact tracing, it's invaluable. Someone gets sick. You might have seen that person, but you have no idea they're sick. And if we allow the algorithms to trace, those contacts, immediately you're told, <laughs> stay at home for two weeks. And the larger social ramifications would be wonderful. So the reason this is so tempting is it does lead to incomparably better health outcomes. It leads to incomparably better public infrastructure because you know exactly when you need trains going to what area based upon what commuter patterns are. I mean, it's incredibly helpful when you actually have states using this. And this is why increasingly, precisely because of COVID, in America, many mayors are saying, we need to start doing the sorts of things they're doing in China because it allows us to do contact tracing. It allows us to actually have effective public transportation. Imagine that in a place like America. It actually allows us to have effective governance, and it truly does. So this is part of what makes it very complicated. So apart from all these practical applications that seem very illogical and tempting, as you say, what other interests might governments have in, in using these kind of methods? And let's get indeed to the scary side. <laughs> so if governments have access to this, it allows them to not only know all of your networks and therefore see if they're dangerous, but even more significantly, it allows you to see how big a network is growing. It allows you to see what social patterns are developing. And of course, since you know all of the patterns and ruts of everyone involved in it, it allows you to manipulate them. So the example that's become very well known through things like the work that Cambridge Analytica did to create Brexit, if in a political campaign, you can trace out people's patterns through these algorithms, it's incredibly powerful in terms of a means of swaying an entire election precisely by giving these key words that will hit certain people in a certain way, affect them in a certain way, bring out a vote without even full knowledge of the implications, just because you've been able to rile people up around a certain set of concerns. It's equally powerful to simply say, if we want, say, a very docile population that will accept what the state is doing and not realize the degree to which the state is really controlling things in a very dramatic way, you can use these same algorithms. 
for precisely the reasons we mentioned, when these algorithms are being used effectively, things work really well. Lo and behold, you go to work and the trains are flawlessly on time. They come when you need them. There aren't long waits for this and that. And it just creates a sense of very well-run, effective government. And a sense because it's true. It is a well-run, effective government, but it's a well-run, effective government because they know exactly who is going where, at what time, what you're going to do, and they aggregate all that information. You also think things are going well because, say, there aren't major political protests. Well, you aren't seeing major political protests because, of course, the government knows precisely what networks are potentially raising concerns about the government, and they're closing down those networks before, say, a demonstration can be put together. So it creates this sense that life is fine, things are going along perfectly fine, things are normal. Well, they seem all of what I just mentioned because you have a state that's normalized these daily routines and made them so easy and so well run that you cease at a certain moment to realize you're actually being controlled and manipulated by an incredibly powerful state. So what can we do about it? And how can we both use the benefits of these technologies and not have the scary part? So one thing I find very powerful since going back to China, you sort of see the political theory underlying this literally beginning 2000 years ago, well before the technology was in place to do what we've been mentioning. Insofar as that is the case, you also have lots of discussions and actual work of trying to work against this. And the reason I'm emphasizing this as being so important is were we to take some of these ideas seriously, it would bring a whole range of possibilities into the discussion as opposed to, I think, mainly the way we tend to think of it, which is to say, well, we need to reassert radical individuality to prevent the state from having too much control. Well, for the reasons we've mentioned, are claims of radical individuality, where I can go on the internet and search for anything I want to and find everything that just fits me as a person based upon my unique self. The degree to which we think that way and the degree to which, therefore, we act that way is precisely what these algorithms most want. It makes us most easily manipulatable. So many of the ideas in the West about how we avoid the dangers of this actually flawlessly feed into precisely what we are discussing. And indeed, it's not a random point to note in China, there's now a big push precisely to emphasize these claims of individualism, because they're really, really helpful, if people think this way, for developing your algorithms. Exactly, because you're looking at that also at the promotion of, of focusing on the individual in China. And just the thought of individual in China seems a bit contradictory to a lot of people, maybe. Precisely. So here in America, often what you will hear about China is, number one, the bad side, that it's this horrible totalitarian state, a growing world power, a recreation of the old Cold War, but now with the evil totalitarian China instead of the evil totalitarian Soviet Union. So you hear that narrative all the time. But then you will hear the next piece of it, which is to say, well, there's one exciting possibility, which is that as the economy in China grows, 
you increasingly get this middle class. The middle class strongly values individualism. And insofar as they support individualism, that individualistic ethos, which sounds a lot like American individualism, will eventually throw off this horrible traditional state and they too will become free and liberated like us in America. And slightly characterizing the view, but only slightly. I mean, you'll hear versions of this all the time. And actually, it's kind of the opposite. So the very strong authoritarian sides of China at the moment are actively encouraging these claims of individualism precisely because those claims are so incredibly helpful for the workings of algorithms. And China has seen that by looking at America and realizing, oh, people really buy this stuff. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> it so allows us to see their patterns and manipulate them accordingly. So you think you're an individual, but you're not really. You're just one part of the big picture. And again, intriguingly, you can find Chinese political theory, the sides that I would find the more scary, but that are feeding the current view, that will literally say things exactly along these lines. If you can get people to think that they are simply being themselves, not realizing the degree to which actually a state is really running things and manipulating things, that's the degree to which the state can be incredibly effective because no one will see what they're really doing. And again, these algorithms simply allow that to be done at a dramatically higher level where the state can literally trace your patterns precisely because you think you're not playing out patterns. You think you're being a nice, free, unique individual, simply looking for whatever you want to on the internet. It's a little bit scary, I think. <laughs> you start to think what you're Google about. Truly. I mean, literally, remember... Google, Facebook, all of these corporations, they know every single internet site you have ever gone to. They know what time of the day you went to it. They know why you went to it, what parts of that internet site you clicked on. And they have worked out over however many decades we've been going on the internet, the larger patterns that you fall into. And once they know that, makes you incredibly easily manipulatable by all the algorithms we've just been mentioning. So there's definitely a connection between surveillance and also the thought of the individual there in you that you can see both in China and elsewhere, I guess, also. Very much so. So part of what I find so exciting about looking at, in this case, the rest of the world via the lens of Chinese political theory is you see very much that this extreme claim of individualism and this extremely I think we would all agree, dangerous use of algorithms by a surveillance state, they are incredibly intertwined, that the former is tremendously helpful for the latter. And when, again, we pose this in terms of the free West versus the horrible totalitarian China, we are falling into a very dangerous way of thinking, not realizing that we live in a society that is increasingly being run the same way, and it's you know, the algorithms literally developed in the West. So how shall we think then about the future? I mean, how can we do it in a good way? So all of this sounds very bleak. So let's get to the hopefully exciting side. This is one piece of the Chinese tradition that has developed. And again, new technologies allow it to be used at extraordinarily powerful levels. Let's touch again on some of the other sides that I think are the more exciting ones. And those more exciting ones would say, Yes, 
we humans do tend to fall into these patterns and ruts that we come to see as natural. So patterns and ruts that we fall into as individuals, we tend to think of as a sign of our unique personality, some, our true self that's unique and radically different from everyone else, not realizing that, no, they're just a bunch of ruts and patterns. And precisely for that reason, as we've mentioned, states can become very effective at manipulating us accordingly. Now, since people were saying this 2,000 years ago, you have very powerful traditions that were saying, well, but how do we break this down? How do we break this down first at the individual level? So what are the things an individual can do in terms of what they will call self-cultivation that will help break us out of these patterns and ruts? The degree to which we can do so is the degree to which we become, by definition, much less manipulatable by powerful interests. It's also the degree to which we can begin to see the world around us as dominated by patterns and ruts, but the degree to which we can therefore begin changing them as well. And imagine a scenario where people doing that self-cultivation through education, but now education defined not as acquisition of knowledge, although it certainly includes that, but education in terms of learning to break out of patterns and really begin rethinking the world. Imagine a meritocracy where those values would be emphasized most immediately in terms of, with the China example, government service, but not exclusively, where you try to develop values in, if you're in the government, if you're working in local arenas, if you're working in the economic marketplace, wherever you're working, the value is one of that kind of cultivation. And if you can create this at a larger level, in other words, really push these as values, then you can open up debates about what kind of a world we want to create. And I emphasize the word create there because once you're emphasizing this as a value, you realize much of the world around us is constructed. We've largely constructed it out of patterns we've fallen into and increasingly because we have states manipulating those patterns, but we could construct it differently. And all of what I've mentioned is what allows that debate to occur. So once we begin to reach a level where we take these ideas seriously, we can begin to ask, how do we address these larger patterns? Why do we keep falling into these patterns of social hierarchy? Why have we allowed levels of economic inequality to emerge at, again, world historical levels? Why are we destroying the climate and, despite our claims, really doing nothing about it? And concretely, how would we reorganize the world? And all of this might sound idealistic, but if you look at the Chinese tradition, they would say, no, it really begins with the basic work of education. And all of this becomes possible. We humans are perfectly capable of rethinking our lives and rethinking the world. And again, here too, we've mentioned the scary side, but the exciting side is you have centuries of people doing exactly that. They did not certainly ever come up with perfect solutions, but the very fact that they are openly debating these issues, developing policies to enact these issues, when pieces of them work, building more on them, when they fail, trying to rethink it. I mean, that's something we should be doing constantly. And certainly we're at a moment in, our, in world history where, we're, where we desperately need to be doing it. So falling out of patterns and rethinking is the key here. Very much so. And when we think, oh, I'll fall out of patterns by looking within, being my unique true self from the Chinese tradition, 
looking at rhetoric like that, what we're really saying is, I will look within, I'll find a bunch of patterns and ruts I fell into, I'll claim them to be my true unique self, I will learn to love and embrace them and never change them and claim them to simply be me. And note the radical difference of saying, we as humans fall into patterns and ruts, most of what I currently think I am are a bunch of patterns and ruts, and I'm going to devote my life to things like cultivation to break myself of these patterns and ruts. And so our claims of radical individualism as the way to rethink the world, maybe it's kind of the opposite. And here too, maybe there are some ideas and actual practices from China that we can really learn from in terms of truly doing what we claim we're doing, which is to rethink the world around us. Do you have some practical example? How can you start with this? I do, because in China, they get very practical very quickly. And they will say a lot of the work, certainly at the individual level, a lot of the work begins with seemingly mundane daily stuff. So they will argue, and I think they're onto something here, these patterns and ruts set in from a very young age in our just daily life, just the ways we deal with those around us, the relationships we build once they fall into ruts define what relationships we build, define how we see the world, or more importantly, define what we don't see in the world. And so they would say, you begin the work right there. And a word they will use a lot, which will sound odd to a, to give our own term modern ear, is a very intriguing one. They'll use the word of ritual. And ritual for them means not rituals that train you into a certain way of being in the world. What they mean by ritual is the opposite. Ritual is about breaking your patterns. And so they'll do things like have role reversal rituals. There's one I love where a father and a son, um, because we know father and son relationships can be a little tense, um, and, and oftentimes patterns can play out for generations. So they do a role reversal where the son becomes the father of the father. The father becomes the son of his own son, trying to break down that pattern not by having the father and son sit down and have a nice heart to heart, which usually doesn't really change anything, but actually literally having each see the world from the other perspective. And so it's work like this. You are trying to break the usual mode of being in the world, to break the relationships we fall into and tend to just repeat endlessly by actively trying to see the world from other perspectives. And all of that seemingly mundane work at a daily level They would argue, and I think they're onto something here, over time, if you really devote yourself to it, it changes absolutely everything. And then imagine doing that individually and then thinking about an education process along the same lines. Imagine that as being a value that is being actively encouraged with the next generation. And imagine the degrees to which you start asking very different questions once you start becoming focused on trying to break these patterns and ruts we fall into. So what should we learn about China? What should we know about China in, in the Western world? You had to go to the library to find out more. What do you want this generation to just get with them aboard on school? One of my strong hopes is to bring a lot of what we've been discussing today into the curriculum. So I would love if the upcoming generation simply in their classes would be learning about world history. They would be reading 
ethical and political theory from China, along with, of course, the great ethical and political theory from the West and hopefully elsewhere as well. And this would just be part of what they would be learning. And so instead of a world that I grew up in, and so largely the world we're living in, where basically anything outside of the West is simply thought of as traditional, and by definition, something we really can't learn anything from, and all knowledge is presented as de facto Western, but we don't even use that term because knowledge is just what developed in the West in the 19th and 20th centuries. That's what knowledge is. So anything you need to think about in terms of building a better society, political theory, etc., by definition is Euro-American thought of the 19th and 20th centuries. And I would simply love for the material we've been discussing to simply be part of what students are learning growing up. And if that were to happen, then they would immediately be in a position by view of their education where if someone said to them, okay, look within, find your true self and love and embrace whatever you find, even your weaknesses, just it's you, love yourself for who you are, they would hopefully see the power of that. And there's certainly powers of that way of thinking, but they would hopefully also immediately see the danger saying, oh yeah, but wait, we also just read something from China that was actually very critical of that saying it can actually lead us to not trying to cultivate ourselves and break us out of our patterns and ruts. And if they simply immediately saw that, then they become the sorts of people who can begin rethinking the world around them. And to me, that is what education should be. Like education should be aimed at giving the students not only the knowledge to rethink the world, but sort of the ways of thinking and the actual practices that involve with changing the world. And when those ideas have come from a place outside the West, wonderful, because that's it's by definition, you're going to be getting new ideas and new practices that those of us who were not being introduced to this at all would otherwise never have access to. So my minimal hope, not to suggest it's going to be easy, but my minimal hope is to bring this into the K through 12 curriculum, the kindergarten through high school curriculum, so that it's just part of what every student would be learning throughout the world. Is there anything that you would like to add about what we have talked about until now, the surveillance and individual and society and China and all those kind of things before we move on a little bit? Oh, well, simply to sum it up very quickly, and again, from the point of view of America, in America, we tend to like to think that we already have the political system and the ideology of individualism that will solve the problems of things like unbelievable economic inequality, climate change. The system is there. We just need to do it. And I think part of the power of taking seriously political theory and ethical theory that arose in China and using that lens to rethink the world, it shows us that actually, no, a lot of our assumptions in America and now these are global ideas and practices are in themselves what are causing these problems. And they really need to be fundamentally rethought by which I do not mean we should get rid of, say, democracy. I think democracy is wonderful. It's to say, let's learn to look at the patterns that are playing out in things like a current political formation in America. And when we see the dangers, and I think looking at it from these other lenses, doing the role reversals we were talking about at a larger global level, 
you can see those dangers very clearly and from elsewhere, in this case, China, see possible, very practical approaches to rethinking very concrete things that are done in the government area, concrete things done in our personal lives that could really lead to a changing of well, kind of everything. Your studies are at the interface of history, anthropology, philosophy, and religion. So how do the different disciplines contribute to your research, and what do you need for a good research environment to do what you do? Yes. So it's, and this ties directly to some of the things we were mentioning earlier, too. When we discuss all of these patterns that we tend to fall into, it's important to remember that the academic disciplines that we take for granted, say, philosophy, religion, history, anthropology, and one can continue through all the major sort of fields of knowledge that we take for granted and simply assume to be natural ways of thinking. These are all creations of 19th century Europeans and very powerful. My argument is not that we should get rid of these. They're powerful, wonderful work has been done in all of them. But as is the case with all patterns of thinking, they can restrict one as much as they can help one. And they allow one to see certain things, but they mean one does not see other things. So I think another thing we desperately need to do in the educational curriculum, beginning at the youngest age, going right through college and graduate school, and for those who continue on to graduate school, I mean, what we need to do is actively help people work across disciplines. And in my case, that has just been invaluable. Is my work history, anthropology, philosophy, religion? The answer is yes. And it's precisely by working across all of those that hopefully it allows one to see things that one couldn't simply see by working in any one single discipline. And I would love for that just to be increasingly a common practice of everyone, just built into the very workings of the curriculum. And you have been at SCAS during 2020, and you're also a non-resident long-term fellow. If we start with the SCAS, how was your stay here? I absolutely love SCAS, and for many reasons, but let me just begin with the point directly on what we were just mentioning. SCAS is devoted to precisely building that kind of cross-disciplinary community. The whole focus is let's bring in people who want to do exciting projects that cut across the existing disciplines. We actively look at the admissions process for people whose projects are kind of they're too big. They haven't quite figured out how to pull it off. It requires working across disciplines, including some disciplines they don't quite know yet and don't fully understand yet. Those are precisely the people we want. We don't want people who are saying, okay, I do X, Y, and Z. Here's my project. I've already worked it out. It fits perfectly in the existing paradigms of my discipline. I can easily finish it in nine months. Um, that's great, but that's not the sort of person that SCAS looks for. SCAS looks for people who want to think big, want to cut across disciplines, aren't yet quite sure how to do it because it means by definition they're moving into territory they don't yet know a lot about. And the idea of SCAS is if you can just bring people like that together and have them get to know each other and build a community over the course of a year, unbelievable things will happen. And that in practice has happened every single time I have been at SCAS. I'm <laughs> just people come in thinking they're going to do Project X 
Again, always it's a little bigger than they've envisaged it, which is why they're brought into SCAS. And by the end of the year, they're doing something that goes so far beyond what they could have imagined. And it's a place that just perfectly embodies what I think we should really be aiming for in the realm of education and research. We should be aiming for a world that encourages people to build communities that are collaborative, that break down our disciplinary barriers, and SCAS is a place that really has created that kind of an environment. Is it a sort of playing also to to play around with different research topics and disciplines? Very much so. It kind of functions as a ritual along the lines of what we were mentioning before, where you do these role reversals and take on different perspectives. That is very concretely the case of a place like SCAS, that over the course of the year, you're listening to people from, so to speak, different disciplines, but you don't just listen to them and ask them about their discipline. It's all about learning from them and then continuing those conversations over the course of the year. So you become, over the year, someone who becomes incredibly knowledgeable about law in ancient Rome for the simple reason there's someone there who's working on it, and that person equally becomes incredibly knowledgeable about this problem in chemistry and unbelievably knowledgeable about this other set of issues in something else utterly, seemingly unrelated. And by doing so, it completely completely changes one's research because you literally start seeing the world in different ways by taking on these different perspectives. So what about yourself? Have you had any surprising interactions or experiences at SCAS? Constantly. I am constantly learning from people doing what I would think are radically different projects from radically different disciplines and finding that when I take them seriously, it fundamentally helps me rethink everything I was assuming, realizing, going back to our earlier discussion, that I was falling into patterns and ruts in my thinking and suddenly talking to someone from a seemingly radically different field opens up everything. And that's not just happening in a, at a few exciting academic seminars where it certainly does happen. It equally happens, and perhaps if anything, all the more so, just having lunch with the fellows on a daily basis. In the previous podcast, people have mentioned a lot the coffee machine and the famous fika, that that is very important for interaction. Incredibly important, because in the academic seminar, one's trying to present oneself as a good academic, as, as one obviously will try to do. And it's really over coffee or over lunch where you get the informal discussions, where instead of presenting here all the ideas I have, you're sort of saying, well, you know, I, I was reading this one thing, I have no idea what to do with it. And I've been resting with it all morning. And here's the sentence, what do you think? And suddenly, kabam. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, you have these amazing conversations that changes everything for everyone, the researcher in question, but the rest of us too. So I agree. It's really over lunch, over coffee, just the informal meetings and in a hallway where oftentimes the most exciting sparks will be generated. And we've been missing out on that for over a year now during the pandemic also. It has been very sad. Now, that being said, I also want to say SCAS has done an incredible job of maintaining that community through the pandemic. So immediately when the pandemic occurred, SCAS began to shift to say, okay, how do we use online resources to continue these conversations? And it's been extraordinary. So suddenly... We have things like, well, podcasts, um, which came directly out of this. We have lots and lots of Zoom seminars. Um, it used to be the case that our seminars were never 
online and just because you know, Zoom was barely used by anyone pre-pandemic, now they all are. And so now you're getting the kind of scarce, incredible environment happening at a global level, including those who cannot physically be at SCAS, which is incredibly exciting. So I think it's been a wonderful way where SCAS has taken what in many ways would be a, a complete crisis for its basic vision of how do you build these communities and said, okay, let's work with this and use these new technologies to open it up to an even more dramatic level than we were before. It's easy to join from everywhere and connect. I haven't physically been in SCAS for a year and a half, and yet I feel fully part of the community because I'm, I'm joining constantly with the Zoom seminars and Zoom conversations. So from all you've just said, we get a good idea why SCAS is such a special environment. And just to sum up, why would you advise other researchers to come to SCAS? Because if you go to SCAS, your entire career will be changed fundamentally for the better. And that sounds like a dramatic thing to say, but I honestly think every single fellow who has ever been at SCAS would say the same thing. All of us walked in thinking, okay, good, I've got nine months to finish my project. And every one of us by the end of that year, it's not just that our project has gone in dramatically new directions that we never imagined, our careers have, because we just are learning so many new perspectives that will change the direction of our research thereafter. And if you look at the careers of people who've gone through SCAS, that has happened with every single one of them. They haven't just finished great projects. They've become more multidisciplinary. They've done incredibly exciting research they never would have imagined. And their career has taken on new directions that they couldn't have imagined either. Sounds wonderful. Maybe I should go back to research and become a SCAS fellow. It's fun enough to be here and doing these podcasts and talking to all of you and learning learning from you. This is the exciting thing about these podcasts is that we, of course, doing them, get to meet you. A larger world out there gets at least a, a sense of the world of SCAS and a sense of, of the conversations that happen at SCAS. Again, none of this was happening even a year ago. And it's really because of the pandemic that the principal, Christina Garston, said, okay, how do we actually then rethink the SCAS experience through the pandemic? And in this case, it's become a form that I have no doubt will continue long after the pandemic is hopefully finally over, just because it's been so intellectually exciting. Thank you so very much for joining SCAS Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course, also. Thank you. This has been so exciting. Again, I'm physically in Boston at the moment, but this conversation just reminds me so much of the conversations one has at SCAS on a daily basis. So thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation and a wonderful re-entrance for me back to the world of SCAS and hopefully for the listeners, a sense of joining that community. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode in the theme Asia, Citizens and State Relations. And I have talked to Michael Pewitt, Walter C. Klein Professor of Chinese History and Anthropology at Harvard University and non-resident long-term fellow here at SCAS. This fall, SCAS Talks will feature the following topics – Life Sciences, Infrastructures and Asia. In previous episodes, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, 
diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. We now have a total of 24 episodes representing the variety of fellows and topics at SCAS and are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Michael Pewitt once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now.